The views and opinions of this program are those of its host and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of 90.1 FM, KKFI, Midcoast Radio Project, or its staff and volunteers. Welcome to Jaws of Justice Radio on 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. It's Monday morning. My name is Terry. Jaws of Justice Radio investigates how we can achieve justice from a system of laws deeply rooted in economic, social, and political inequality. We hope you will listen. We begin our Christmas broadcast with a replay of host Margot Patterson speaking with Sally's Dion Hare and Macy Jones about Christmas in the penitentiary. They give you an idea what it's like to celebrate Christmas while in prison. Does the day-to-day routine of prison life take a break? They speak to the dehumanizing effects of incarceration and tell how they came from a place of lost hope and faith to one of strength and self-awareness by studying and accepting Islam. This is truly a different kind of Christmas story. This is not your it's a wonderful life kind of Christmas story. During the second half of our hour, host Melvin Merritt will speak with Mr. Kyle Mead, President, CEO of Heartland Center for Behavioral Change, a 501c3 nonprofit charitable organization founded in 1982. The mission of the Heartland Center is to provide behavioral health care and substance use disorder treatment services to help individuals lead healthier, happier, more productive lives. Melvin and Kyle will discuss how the Heartland Center has been saving lives and helping people achieve positive change for more than 30 years. Last year, they helped deliver change to more than 5,000 people through their detoxification and substance use treatment programs. With the assistance of public funding, services are available to persons in need, and they provide services on a non-discriminatory basis. On Jaws of Justice, we examine how to find justice in our society. Justice will not be served until those who are unaffected are as outraged as those who are. Now, our show. Now, here's Margot, Dion, and Macy. This is Margot Patterson with Jaws of Justice Radio, and we are here talking to Macy Jones and Dion Hare about what Christmas is like for the men and women serving time behind bars in our country's prisons. And... Macy and Dion, could you tell us a little bit about yourselves? Yes, as you stated, my name is Macy Jones, and I was incarcerated for over 20 years. And I was in Missouri State Penitentiary. I was in Mobley Correctional Center. And I've only been out three years. I was released September the 29th of 2009. And September the 29th of this year made my three year. I celebrated that three years. Because it's beautiful to be free, you know. And Dion. Yes, uh, my name is Dion Hare. First of all, I want to thank you for having me on your show. Uh, I also have been incarcerated over 20-something years. Uh, I got out in 2007. Unfortunately, I went back uh, about 2009. But since I've been out so far, it's been a total of 19 months. Um, again, it's, it's a blessing. It's definitely a blessing. Well, before we get to talking about Christmas and how it's celebrated in prison, I'm curious, what did you two go to prison for? I went to prison for committing of a murder. And Dion? Same for second-degree murder. I am very ignorant of what Christmas is like for those 
people in prison. Tell us from your experience uh, what you found there. What was December 25th like? December the 25th for me incarcerated was just another day because I, you know, when I went to prison, I didn't, I didn't have any concept of ever being free again. So living in that mindset, every holiday is just that, another day. Was Christmas celebrated? Yes, prison was celebrated in Christmas. However, I had to make a transition into, into even thinking that holidays should mean anything at all. It was celebrated to the point to where, you know, you had administrative that would take money from the inmate canteen that was allotted to even pass out so-called, they call it goodie bags and things like that. Then you had certain churches that came up in the chapel and put on programs for inmates to come and share and rejoice, things like that. You had other organizations also, too, that maybe perhaps inmate organizations that perhaps participate in it. Within within their own within their own organization to celebrate Christmas also too, but like Macy said that Christmas I mean like another day you know you you, uh, you wake up you plan your day you hopefully that nothing happens but also the administration also puts like they call it a little meal it be turkey sometimes be dressing it really depends you know they might have pie something like that but I guess it's the thought that it counts and when you think if I may and when you think the mentality of what. Christmas is supposed to represent the gathering of family. If you had children, a wife, you know, you now here you are, you sitting in a cell while they are on the other side of them walls or them fences without. And now the, the, the festive part of it seems to be diminished a little bit. Oh, of course. Well, I'm wondering, did the prison authorities allow family visits on Christmas Day? If I believe it's been, it's an occasion that it has been, but if prison, I mean, if Christmas falls like on a Tuesday, because currently I think right now uh, business are on Thursdays, Friday, and Saturday and Sunday. So by Christmas being on a Tuesday, it's 50 50, and it really depends on what level the camp is. Level five, maybe not. Maybe level two camp institution, yes, it may be. Well, tell us what these levels mean level five, level two. What's that all about? Level five is more your maximum security institutions. Your level two camps are the institutions where the custody level is not as high. The risk of wanting to get away. <laughs> and and to to, yeah, to add to that, and you have less aggressive inmates. So and also that individuals who may come to jail for thirty have thirty years sentence, have a life sentence or life in fifty. You know, those are where you'd be at the maximum security penitentiary where the uh, Jeff City, which is called, uh, the street is called uh, No More Hope. Yeah, No More Victims. Yeah, No More Victims. So then if you happen to get a date by the parole board, then they drop your level two, level four, level three. It, it really depends because a sex offenders, they can never be dropped to a level one, level two. They must remain as a high level risk, period. Well, I'm thinking that Christmas can be a difficult day for people uh, outside prison. You know, there are so many expectations. Many people find it hard to handle the Christmas season. How about inmates? Do you think Christmas is a harder day than normal? I'm, I'm sure that there's a huge variety because everyone is different. But is that a hard day for people inside prison? Oh, definitely for sure. Because <laughs> the hardest thing about that is when you call home. 
when you come home and you have children and your children so used to you being there providing for them, especially for this one day. And all of a sudden when you when you call, you hear your family in the background, you may hear children cry, laughing, things like that. That type of joy will definitely bring that type of hurt and sorrow in your heart because then here it is. You, you the ones missing, especially when somebody say, hey, we having fun, brother, we this, that, this, that. But guess what? You know, only everybody's here. You're the only one that's missed. That right there will drop the bomb on anybody's elevator. A lot of us didn't call home during that time due to the simple fact that, you know, it's like getting a visit. You get a visit, and when visiting hours is over with, you know, you seeing your loved ones walk out the door, and, you you know, you still here. So a lot a lot of us didn't call home because we didn't want that to make our time harder or the emotional responses that come from hearing your loved ones over the telephone in a festive environment. What was your daily routine like, and was it any different on Christmas? I mean, did anything change in terms of what you would normally be doing? (laughs) No. The daily routine consists of count time four times a day. Now, what's count time? Is where the, where the officers come by and make sure that the, the amount of bodies are still left in the institution. If the count, say for instance, you had an institution that holds eighteen hundred. If they got less than eighteen hundred there, that means somebody then got what we call ghosts or escaped or hidden, or whatever, or missing. So it's like it's like in the, the day they got count time. Everywhere in prison is a line. If you go to breakfast in the morning, if you go to lunch, if you go to dinner. Like I said, the showers are still be on. You still have people playing cards or playing dominoes, reading books. The library may not be open. The chapel will be open. Then, like I said, it's just, it's just a daily routine. Nothing changes. Everything's repetitious. And how do you spend your time between breakfast and lunch? Working. But on Christmas, seeing how they're, you know, we're not having to work if you didn't work in the, in the dining hall. So you, you had the watching, day off. Watching football. Well, that was my question. So you'd have the day off from working on Christmas Day? Some. Some would have the day off. Christmas has become, for many people, a secular holiday, but of course it's really a religious holiday. Uh, are either of you Christian? No, I'm not. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Muslim. I'm a, I believe in, um, I'm a part of a Muslim faith in Islam. I, my background is Christianity, but as as you become older and you do your research and things, you know, you, you pave your own path. And uh, Macy? I, as well, am a Muslim. However, that word Christian in the concepts of the doctrines that are being presented, I'm not Christian in that extent, but I am a Christian in the principles that come from Jesus Christ himself. I think of prisons as being perhaps God-forsaken places. By that, I mean sort of desperate places, but of course... I would think in God-forsaken places, many people might seek out God more or seek out some kind of religious faith. That sounds like maybe it was your experience, and is that common, do you think? It, it's not the experience in the beginning. You know, When you're sent to prison, you ain't sent to prison uh, with any hopes. As the sign said, when we got there, leave all your hopes and dreams behind. You are now entering the Missouri State Penitentiary. So you're not, you're not going there with any ideals or concepts of having anything ever again. So in the beginning, no, that's not the that's not the common. Later on, as time passes and things begin to change and you begin to change within yourself and your attitudes, 
and maybe begin some begin to see some semblance of hope, then uh, yeah, you come into a spiritual awakening. As 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 a child, our mothers tell us to believe in God, to talk to God. So when you're in a prison, one thing that you gonna know if you don't have a friend, the only friend you gonna have is who? Is God Himself. Some people do take the religion and and make for the wrong reasons, but you have to remember you have to revert to back when your mother had taught you is to believe. This is Margot Patterson with Jaws of Justice Radio, and we are here talking to Macy Jones and Dion Hare about Christmas in prison, the role of faith for prisoners. How many years were you in prison before you started seeking out some kind of religious faith? I myself, I was in prison 10 years before I finally decided that, hey, one day I was sitting in the cell and I said, hey, you know, if there's a God, then I'm going to ask you something. If you real manifest yourself to me, show me, show me, give me, give me some sign. You gave Moses one in the burning bush, you know, hey, all the time hearing people talk about God and every Sunday morning when you cut on the TV that every channel you turn to, you know, with some preacher on there talking and saying this about God, 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 and God talked to him and he talked to you, okay. So I wanted him to talk to me. Well, is there a lot of talk about God in prison with your fellow prisoners? Definitely, for sure. You know, you always have what they call wars. And I say war, I don't mean physically, I mean, you know, mentally, where you have those individuals who doesn't understand uh, actually the word God or don't understand what religion is. You always you're always gonna have soul searchers, no matter no matter where you at in prison or out of prison. You got people out here today that's searching. And along in accords with what he's expressing, even among those who profess to to already be either a Christian, Muslim, Jew, or whatever, they themselves put have the misconcepts of each other. So in having the misconcepts of what a Muslim is, or having a misconcept of what a Christian is, here it is, the Christian and the Muslims are having dialogue as to, you know, who's right and who's wrong. And here I am, the individual that may be trying to find find God. Now I'm trying to figure out which where I need to be at. Exactly. So exactly. Uh, we sit down and we listen. So, yes, there there is that that takes place, just like out here in society, where the Muslims are misunderstood and the, and, and the Muslims are misunderstanding the Christians and individuals talking about, you know, that this that they going to heaven as opposed to others going to heaven. Well, hey, you know, for a man incarcerated right now, he in hell and he trying to make sure that he can find the heaven. But then he gets them conflicts as well. I know there are a lot of people who have become Muslims in prison. I'm curious why, what the perception of Christianity is and what the draw of Islam is. Well, you have in prison throughout the state prisons, you have the Moorish Science Temple, which is a conscious organization. They believe they believe in what Marcus Garvey stood for and Jubal Ali. And also you have the Nation of Islam. The Nation of Islam, everyone knows that it's headed by Farrakhan. And that particular time when the Nation of Islam came about, our people was very desperate in need for that belief in yourself. And then you have Islam. You're talking over 400-some years. Even in the Bible, it's, uh, uh, it, spoke, it speaks about Prophet Muhammad, Salaam. So personally, some people do join, come in straight into in prison, join, join religion organizations for safety. 
uh, and I hope in their heart that later on in life that they come to actually believe. Then you have some such as, as me and Macy to where it took us over 10 years to actually, one, find ourselves. Second, you know, we had to stop doing the prison uh, hustle, the prison things that, and make sure that we got away from all the prisons knocking to make sure that if we take this religion, any religion we take, make sure we be serious about the religion. Well, now, what's the prison hustle? Oh, my goodness. I opened a can of worms, didn't I? A, pri- a prison hustle can be, you know, uh, selling cigarettes, selling coffee, selling chili chip, you know, things like that. And along with what he was talking about earlier about Islam and why do, why do individuals come to Islam in prison, a lot of the majority of us come from Christian backgrounds. And in coming from Christian backgrounds, you have the Christian doctrine that you receive from a child, but you never made the conscious choice yourself mm-hmm. to accept Christianity as your way of life because you studied it for yourself and come to know that this is best for you and and suits what God had intended for you. So in in coming to prison, you came as a Christian, but once you got there, you heard about Islam. And in the studying, because see, you just can't say I'm a Muslim and 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 that's what it is. You have to study first to know that this is what it is. So me being a Christian coming to prison, I had to study it. And in studying it, there were things that I come to find out that best suited me, to give an example. We know the story of where they talk about Jesus went into the temple and he turned the table over and, and whipped, the, whipped the people or the cows or something up out the temple, the money changers. Now, when individual hears that and then hear that Jesus turned the other cheek, now there's, there's, there's a conflict in the mind, and then you see in society that somebody gets smacked that says he's a Christian, but he ain't turned no other cheek. So now you're wondering, what was these principles and these teachings really all about? So in the studying of Islam, the doctrine of, of Jesus dying on the cross, these are the things that separate Christianity. Jesus dying on the cross is the only thing that separate a Christ, the, those with the label Christian from a Muslim, those with the label Muslim. When we look at the principal teachings of Jesus and the teachings of Islam, then we come to find out Jesus fast. There's no difference. The only, the only, the only different variations that we actually have or any conflict that may, may appear or develop between Christianity and Islam is that when they say Jesus is the son of God. And we, as as Muslims, we are known as Jesus as being noble, great prophet, never the son of God. We never associate anybody with God himself or equal. Because you have to say that Mary was Jesus' mother. So what does that make her? And in, in my token, I got put out of Sunday school one day because I thought that Adam should have been the son of God. That's what deterred me away from Christianity because the stories that the questions I was asking could no one come up with them, and I think that getting put out of Sunday school at a young age was kind of you know rough, was, was, was rough. So you know, not saying that they pushed me towards Islam because, like you said, you have to study. Like you know, that's the only that's the difference. There it is. You know, that's when a Christian said, and it's a lot of Christians that acknowledge that that he's not the Son of God or he's not God Himself. You, know, you mean there are a lot of people, a lot of people who call themselves Christians who think that? Right. Yes. Yes. And and then I know a plenty of them that that know for a fact that that he. In other words, when somebody pray, they might say, "Oh Jesus," and they pray through Jesus to God. 
I'm wondering if the popularity of Islam has to do with the Muslim chapel chaplains are more effective or better teachers than the Christian chaplains there? No, the um, Islam really came from the men themselves that were incarcerated. This was the establishment of it. It wasn't it wasn't a chaplain that 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 had the influence. It was the men who were sitting in a cell right along with you that you seen something in his character or you seen something about him, the peace or the tranquility that he had that made it possible for you to, hey, what what you got? I need some of that, man. Yeah. And how do you think religious faith has helped you, or how did you see it helping other people in prison, whether it was Islam or Christianity or another religion, perhaps? Actually, huh, peace, it, humility, it humbles you. It, You know, to, to be able to practice something that, one will bring will bring joy to you when you read the history of Islam and know about the hereafter, know about the, the things that takes place at the hereafter. Me per se is that so many bad things has happened to me after other. You know, some people call it bad luck, some people call it karma with the K. But my life has changed. My life changed, and to say that it helped me, it made me discipline to, to discipline myself far as who I am, what I want to go what I want to do, and how to get to these things that I need to do. And also it helped me to want to better myself and present myself not only as this, this barbaric individual some people may uh, perhaps think of me, but one thing about it, know that I'm a man. I learned that through education and Islam, I knew that can no number, color, nickname grade me, higher than I could grade myself as a man. I learned one thing. It's not what they call me, it's what you answer to. And it's life. Simply put it like he said, you, you live, you, you, come, you come to life. When, whether you be a Christian, Muslim, if you live according to the principles, if you live according to the principles that you've been given, according to your teachings, then you come to life. Because we went in dead, you know. Yes, we went in yes, dead. Yeah. You was considered a beast, an animal. When you, put, when you put somebody in a cage, when you put someone in a cage, you 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 considering them dead. The incarcerated citizens, which we call them incarcerated citizens, when they was putting them cages, they wasn't putting them cages to live. You been to the zoo? When you see a gorilla, is that gorilla happy? <laughs> you know, no. So his spirit is is crushed. So the same principle applies for the incarcerated citizens. They didn't go in there alive. They went in dead. But once they heard life-giving principle, I'm going to say principle, then they came to life. Then you come to life. Now you live. When you start living, then your walk change, Mm -hmm. your talk change, and your actions change. Then, after that, something else happens. The God that you say that you believe in, the one true God, makes a way for you. Because now you you cry out to him and you call to him and say, hey, open up these doors for me. Open up these doors, and once he opens up the doors, now you're on this side to try to be an example. See, there's been a lot of men and women that have come out of prison and don't went back. They, that happened. You become alive. Dion and Macy, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having me.
Support for KKFI comes from the Johnson County Museum, featuring special exhibit, trains, transportation, and the transformation of Johnson County, now through January 13th. This exhibit showcases the impact of railroads on the county's landscape, people, and economy. Through interactive displays, artifacts, and visuals, visitors are transported back in time to witness the changes that rail transportation brought to Johnson County. For more information, visit jocomuseum.org. Tune in to Economics for the People every fourth Thursday at 7 p.m. It's a show about people and communities, economics, life, and livelihoods, about diverse voices and economic experiences. Join us on a collective journey to shape and reimagine an economy that prioritizes people over profit. Economics for the People, every fourth Thursday at 7 p.m. We've entered our annual year-end fund drive here at KKFI, and we're looking for support from listeners like you. In case you didn't know, we are a listener-supported, non-commercial community radio station that is committed to reflecting the diversity of the local and world community. We seek to amplify voices and music that have been underrepresented by other media, and we can't do it without you. Please take a moment to support your community radio station by donating online at kkfi.org. Happy New Year, and thank you for listening to Kansas City Community Radio. Here's the calendar for the week of December 25th. Legal Aid of Western Missouri can provide free civil legal services to low-income and vulnerable people who live in Jackson County, Missouri. Interested individuals can call 816-474-6750 to apply. Please check the calendar at moresquare.org for events you can attend. A list of services, meals, and hotlines are available at lawrenceprogressivecalendar.blogspot.com. The list is updated daily. Monday, December 25th, 2 to 6 p.m., Christmas Cafe at the Sunrise Project, 1501 Learnard Avenue, Lawrence, Kansas. Open to anyone who'd like to be in community. There will be warm drinks, snacks, cookies to decorate, games, puzzles, arts, and crafts. Thursday, December 28th, 6 p.m., Corey's Network Grief to Relief Seminar will be at Maddie Road Center, 148 North Topping Avenue, Kansas City, Missouri. These seminars are free, informative, and designed to provide you with information and context that will help you get social services, help solve the homicide, be ready for court, and move forward. Available by Zoom, if preferred, more information on Facebook at Corey's Network. Items listed in this calendar can also be found on this episode's page at the KKFI website, kkfi.org, as well as on the Jaws of Justice Facebook page. Please take care of yourselves and others. Thanks for listening to Jaws of Justice. Have a safe and happy holiday. We'll be back next Monday for New Year's Day. Let's now return to the program, Melvin Merritt speaking with Kyle Mead of Heartland Behavioral Center.
Good morning, Kansas City, and Merry Christmas, and welcome to Jaws of Justice right here on KKFI 90.1 FM on your dial. I am your host, Melvin Merritt. Our subject is about Heartland for Behavior Change. And it's been 40, it's been 40 years Heartland Center for Behavior Change has helped people rebuild their lives through reentry services and substance use disorder treatment services. The acronym is HCBC. The program employs trained professionals, including program managers, counselors, case managers, community and peer support specialists to enhance the efforts of the criminal justice and behavior health system in protecting communities and rebuilding lives. To help me talk about this is none other than Mr. Kyle Mead. He is the president and CEO of Heartland Center for Behavior Change. Welcome to Jaws of Justice, Mr. Mead. Good morning. Thank you so much, Melvin. I really appreciate the opportunity to be on this morning. Merry Christmas and happy holidays to all. Merry Christmas to you, sir. Uh, one of the first things that jumped out in my mind is about the uh, part about the reentry service. And could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, Heartland Center for Behavioral Change was founded by a lady named Shirley Johnson. And one of the things that she really recognized was the stigma associated with people who were criminal justice system involved and those individuals who are coming out of um, prisons and periods of incarceration. And she wanted to provide a place of refuge and hope and um, services in order to make sure that those people had a fair opportunity to return back to the community and to be successful. And so the company was really founded on the ideal, on the idea of um, working with some people that were typically disenfranchised in our community and specifically around those individuals who have um, found themselves involved in the criminal justice system. And so reentry was a big part of what she wanted from the very beginning of our organization. And it was the very first contract that she ever had was with the Department of Corrections back in 1984. Wow. Uh, let me back up a little second. I don't know if I mentioned that you are the uh, president and CEO of uh, Heartland Center, so just in case I didn't mention that but uh, may have. And I remember uh, interviewing uh, Shirley Johnson years ago on another broadcast and I had an opportunity and, and what, uh, what led her into this uh, type of, uh, um, for lack of a better word, this type of a uh, program, uh, she was, uh, she experienced it out of her own life. I think if you might be aware of that, could you tell us a little bit about that? If you know. Yes, uh, Shirley did, in fact, um, suffer from substance use disorder, and it had some life experience that um, made her acutely aware of the challenges of people suffering from substance use disorder and criminal justice system involvement. And she really dedicated her life to being able to help those individuals. But you're you're absolutely right, Melvin. It, it started with her own life experience, and um, that's where that desire really came from. And in fact, for a period of time, she worked 
at the Honor Center uh, here in Kansas City with people who are coming out of prison before she actually founded uh, Heartland Center, or at the time, Kansas City Community Center was the name of the organization. We, we changed our name back in 2012, but when she originally founded uh, Kansas City Community Center, it was around that idea of specifically taking her lived experience and her experience in working with the Department of Corrections to try to create a better opportunity for reentry back to the community for those individuals. And I think that that for that acronym of course, I think most people remember it as KK. I think KCCC or something yeah. like that. That's what they better was. It was better known by that name by KCCC. And uh, I remember when she had uh, had that building. I think it was on where was that located? Uh, just off of Truman. Yeah, 1514 Campbell. It's actually a really amazing historical building. It's the original George Washington Carver Elementary School. And um, that was the building that she was able to acquire. And for many, many years, it was the administrative um, building for all services that that uh, Heartland Center has offered out of that building. So, yeah, it was the first place that she had ever been able to acquire and to be able to make that available to the community as a whole. And it's a really neat old building. Uh, the architecture goes back to the 1890s in some of it. So it's pretty amazing. Wow, I didn't know that. I think they added on something to that building as well since then. And, and I think they have an in-house type of a treatment or a live-in facility. I think that that's there. I'm not for sure about that. Yep, you're absolutely correct. And back in 1984, when she first got that that contract with the Department of Corrections, the 1514 Campbell location was where she housed those individuals. But you're exactly right. The main building part of it was built in the 1890s. I don't know exactly the year, but the next addition was the gymnasium and the auditorium uh, section. And then finally, uh, the most modern part of that building is is when we added on to have our dining room, kitchen services. And um, finally, up above it, we actually expanded into some more residential. At one point in time, we were housing probably around 175 people in that location. Wow. Wow. Uh, moving right along, tell us a little bit about this uh, peer support, especially when it's uh... Uh, the specialty is to uh, to enhance the efforts of the criminal justice. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, one of the things that we've really recognized is that um, people relate to those individuals who have some lived experience. And so um, Missouri, being a very um, innovative uh, state, uh, Actually, I, I really think they've done an amazing job, but we recognized through the Missouri Credentialing Board that there was a need for the lived experience approach. And so they created a credential called the Certified Peer Support Specialist. And um, so you can actually get that certification, which enables you to provide services for individuals that are billable under Medicaid and through the Department of Mental Health. But what we're really looking for is those individuals who lived experiences, give them the opportunity to work with people who are coming back to the community and that can really understand some of the, the dynamics of what that experience is like. You know, for an individual who 
has to mark down on an application for employment or an application for an apartment that they have a felony conviction. Those are really anxiety um, driven type of things. And so having somebody that can can be there to support that individual, somebody who has that lived experience and can help them to understand and prepare for the questions that they might be asked and um, to recognize even some of the opportunities that maybe the individual doesn't know. That peer support specialist can be just an incredible level of support for that individual to help make that return to the community successful. And, and, you know, and I think that that's especially when you use the word peer because of the person that have uh, that is the specialist that work with these individuals. They have already experienced it within their own lives and and it resonates in the person that's trying to come out of something uh, by working with the person that have already experienced it and have, you know, uh, they have been successful at, at uh, reinventing or re uh uh, shaping their own lives, for lack of a better word. Absolutely. There are so many things that maybe we don't always think about right away, but re-engagement with your own family and within your own community is something that I think for many people is is a scary prospect. And um, they have to rebuild those relationships frequently. And so having that peer support specialist to assist them to understand what that's like to be able to to support them through that process is incredibly important. And we see it as life-changing every day. And you're absolutely right, Melvin, that that lived experience gives that person credibility. Um, when, when they've been there and walked a mile in that person's shoes, it makes all the difference in the world for that individual to know that that person's actually been there. And, and I've, you know, I've heard so many people that sometimes uh, say that, you know, you don't know what I've gone through. They can't tell the person that has is working with them that they don't know and because they can give their own story about their own experience with, you know, within that. So I, I think that resonates real strongly with the person. So I, it, it's a great insight to use a person. And I could see where you're talking about peer support. You know, and that resonates, with, at least with me. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, what do you mean when you say withdrawal management? What is that? Sure. For many, many years, uh, the state of Missouri operated under what was called a C-STAR model for substance use uh, disorder treatment. And that was a comprehensive substance abuse treatment program. And we've recently changed here in the state of Missouri over to what's called ASAM or the American uh, Society of Addiction Medicine. Well, Back in the days of the C-STAR programs, it was what people would really recognize as being detoxification. And there were two levels of detoxification. The first one was social setting, which was one in which that there were not medications and medical staff on board. And the other one was medically monitored inpatient detoxification. And that was something that we began uh, as an agency back in 2012 when the Affordable Care Act came, uh, the law of the land. And it enabled us to be able to utilize Medicaid funding to support individuals and to provide them with um, 
withdrawal management services that included comfort medications and medications to help that person sustain long-term abstinence if that was their goal and what they chose to do. But for many years, we recognized that individuals were coming to our programs that were oftentimes experiencing homelessness. They were um, uh, chronically experiencing uh, intoxication, particularly from alcohol. Uh, people were dying, and the withdrawal process from alcohol is an incredibly dangerous thing. It's one of the few drugs that are out there that a person can still die from the withdrawal management. And so having medical staff, having licensed practice, practicing nurses, having advanced practice uh, registered nurses, having a medical director on staff, providing those comfort meds as opposed to what people might recognize as white knuckling approach to detoxification. This gives people such a better opportunity. It's such a more humane approach. And that's really what withdrawal management is, is it's managing those symptoms, including the medical risk associated with withdrawing from alcohol and other drugs. And that kind of take me into that question of, uh, because your philosophy is early detection. And uh, tell me, it, it's and before you answer that particular one, because what was standing out in my mind when you were saying this is that it was this medication that they put you on that was like a deterrent or you couldn't feel the alcohol. But if you took the alcohol, it would literally just about kill you. I don't know if you're familiar with that medicine. Sure. Yeah, there's medications have been around for a long time that have proven themselves to be effective. But one of them, and I, I'm probably going to butcher the name, but it's Alcompensate, I think, is the, the pronunciation. But it's it's a um, uh, oftentimes people would have recognized it as antabuse. And so and, it was antabuse. Really antabuse. Yeah, it was really designed for if you were to consume alcohol, um, it would make you physically sick. And yeah. so it created that opportunity for a deterrent so that you wouldn't feel the positive effects from that medication. Nowadays, we've got a lot more options that are available to us. And again, I'll, I'll use the term humane, um, making the negative impact of using, uh, frankly, for many people, there's enough negative consequences already. But there are some medications out there right now, like... Um, Bivitrol or naltrexone, which actually does block some of the receptors in the brain. So it does take away the positive um, effects of using alcohol. It takes away some of the euphoria associated with it. It also has been proven to um, reduce cravings and compulsion to be able to use. So those medications are wonderful for an individual who actually wants to discontinue or at least significantly reduce their alcohol consumption and these medications can really help a lot with them you know we talk about uh behavior health and, and i remember years ago that this individual was on this medication uh and if you know because you alluded to the fact that you know if you take alcohol on top of it it will make you sick not only that it will literally kill you if you consume too much alcohol and i remember this one guy uh, had drank all night and had been on this particular medication and he could literally committed suicide on it. And is that possible? 
Well, certainly, uh, you know, if an individual is going to be on those medications to block the receptors and if they attempt to consume an amount of alcohol to get the positive effects, the euphoria, it is entirely possible that a person could drink themselves into an alcohol poisoning type of a state. And they they could, in fact, um die as a result of that drug poisoning. Um, We do a lot of education with individuals around that. Don't try to drink your way into this because you're not going to be able to successfully do it. And you're going to place yourself and your body in significant harm if you attempt to do that. Um, So that's an extremely important thing. And I think oftentimes because alcohol is legal, people think that it's very safe. And the reality is it can be used safely, but there is a level of consumption that is unsafe for people. And and, um, certainly in terms of drug poisoning, alcohol absolutely has an overdose risk of death. And people do need to know that. There is also a risk of death associated with the withdrawal process and uh it's extremely important that people seek the appropriate type of medical care when they are withdrawing from alcohol in order to ensure that they can do that safely. You know, we're talking about this and we're right in the heart of Christmas and, uh, and usually that associate with uh, having fun drinking and that type of thing. And maybe somebody is listening in that maybe that is deep into alcoholism and drug addiction and but uh the thing that i want to throw out is how do you deal with people that are poly users yeah which has really become kind of the standard anymore it used to be that we would have people reference their drug of choice and it was at least the most commonly used um drug for euphoric effects for that individual it's really gotten to a place now where people are using multiple substances. And oftentimes, uh, unfortunately, particularly around pharmaceutical medications, there are a lot of fake uh, medications that are out there on the street. So a lot of times people don't actually even know what they're taking. It's amazing. Part of that early detection is to do some drug testing on individuals when they come to us. And it's really... um, It's really hard to watch an individual tell you that, say, I don't use fentanyl or I don't use opioids. But when we do their drug screen, it comes back that they are, in fact, using opioids and sometimes fentanyl without even them having the knowledge uh, that they were using it. It's a very scary proposition. And uh, polysubstance use is certainly something that we are seeing a higher and higher incidence of every single day. You, you mentioned it about various different drugs that a person is experiencing, uh, but for some people that might not quite understand, uh, could you break it down in terms of polyusing? And we understand uh, you, the intellectuals already know, but some people that might be listening don't understand polyusers. Sure. Well, like I said, it used to be that a person would come in and say, well, this was my drug of choice. And more often than not, whenever we would do the drug screening, that would be the one and only substance of 
of use that we might find in their system. But now what we're finding is that people are using across multiple um, substances. So they may use alcohol, they may use opioids, they may use benzodiazepines or um, Valium. They may smoke marijuana. They may um, uh, even use uh, methamphetamine or cocaine. And you will see it come across in an individual to use multiple substances. It was very common um, years ago that a person would either like stimulants or uppers or downers, and they didn't usually cross over into those. And we're seeing it today where a person might use methamphetamine as an upper and may also turn around and use opiates or benzodiazepines as a downer at the same time. And, you know, we we saw a lot of that start to become to light a few years back with some celebrities who would do what they would call speedballing, where they would mix heroin and cocaine. And uh, so we we we've known about this for a long time, but it has become very prevalent in the community now that for people using substances that they'll cross over and use really whatever's available. Uh, and, and shockingly, they don't always know everything that they're taking and using. They, they're oftentimes quite surprised to find out what we see in their actual drug screens. Yeah, I, I'm seeing that I, we, we have a few more minutes left. Uh, is there a cost for the clients to come into your program? Generally speaking, no. I can't say that it's just absolutely free. But what we do is a... Um, a uh, standard means test. And so I would say probably 95% of the people that come through our program have zero out-of-pocket expense to them. We do that standard means test to determine what their income levels are. And as long as it meets the standards set by the Missouri Department of Mental Health, there's no cost to them for their services. And for anybody who has Medicaid, generally Medicaid picks uh, full payment for all of their treatment services. And that's everything from withdrawal management up through residential support services and outpatient treatment services, including medications, which can be an incredibly expensive thing. The Vivitrol shot alone is almost $1,000 per shot. And most people cannot afford that, particularly early in recovery. But because of the support of the, the state of Missouri Department of Mental Health, we're able to provide those services at no cost to almost all of the people that we see. The sections would be like SATOP services or those that are substance awareness traffic offenders. So if someone got a DWI, they're going to have some out-of-pocket expense. But for the rest, usually not. Uh, we got about one more minute uh, left in the program. Tell us uh, how can we, how anyone can get in touch with your program, giving us Absolutely. your. Sure. Well, the Heartland Center for Behavioral Change has a website. It's heartlandcbc.org. That CBC is Charlie Boy Charlie. Dot org And we have a contact us right on our website. And um, I actually get those emails myself and I will divert them out. Most people don't realize that we have a much bigger footprint. We have uh, locations in Liberty, Independence, uh, two in the downtown uh, Kansas City location and some in southwest Missouri. And if we don't have the program for you, we'll try to direct you. But our main number is 816 421 six six seven zero and it will guide you to the right programs thank you mr kyle 
Meade, uh, the president and CEO of Heartland Center for Behavior. I'm been, I, I am your host, Melvin Merritt, and you've been listening to KKFI Jaws of Justice right here on 90.1, and go out and have a safe Christmas and a happy holidays. Thank you, Melvin. I appreciate it. Thank you. Lisa Strong, CMS Sackville. Peace, love, and joy. At Christmas time, when everyone talks about peace and joy and the love of family, I am reminded daily of the struggles people face over addiction, violence, and allowing others the right to be who they say they are. Peace and joy is what we need each day. Saying thank you and how can I help you are words that should have more meaning. We shouldn't be so afraid to offer anyone our time or to show someone that we care. Our egos and our fear divides us into people that become numb to a world that is full of color. Let us not forget to humble ourselves and to be grateful for those we come into contact with because they are the ones that just could perhaps help us to be better and change our perceptions of what we don't understand. When we begin to listen to one another with an open heart and mind, we suddenly find ourselves growing and becoming a more loving person. It's not that big of a task to ask of this. Reach out and speak out about the changes that we all need to make to really be able to say peace, love, and joy to everyone. Open your heart to someone in need, and just maybe you will see that we are more alike than we are different. In the spirit of hope and being thankful, I say thank you to Prison Radio for giving me a place to be heard when nobody else would listen, to flying over walls that brought Prison Radio to me, to Black and Pink and Ultraviolet for all you do for the LGBTQ, for Hearts on a Wire, my new friends. Thank you to Susie and Prison Health News, to JD for allowing me the courage to tell my story, for Janetta and everyone at Trans Justice Project, we've only just begun, for Mrs. Stifa and the people at the California Collision for Women Prisoners, our struggles will be our victories, and they will be many, to P&D and Kelsey, you are my life when the world seems dark. Let everyone find peace, love, and joy in one another forever. Lisa Strawn, CMS Sackville, peace, love, and joy. These commentaries are recorded by Noel Hanrahan of Prison Radio. Peace on earth, goodwill to all men. Glory, glory in the 
enjoyed today's show and that we leave you with something to think about, something to talk to your neighbors about, and a reason to get involved. As always, the opinions expressed are those of the host and the guests of Jaws of Justice Radio, not of KKFI, the Midcoast Radio Project Incorporated, its staff or volunteers. You can find our calendar of events and a link to our show episodes on the Jaws of Justice Radio Facebook page. You can always listen to us live and find our podcast on the KKFI website, kkfi.org. If you have a show idea or want to help produce the show, you can send an email inquiry or comment 
to kkfi.org forward slash contact. This is Jeff reminding you our outro music is Higher Ground from the Playing for Change CD.